Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is called the Great Commission not because it is better than all the other commissions in the Bible, but because it includes all the other commissions in the Bible. Go and make disciples of everybody is the sum of our whole duty if we understand what making a disciple really means. And that text says it means two things. Bringing people to Christ through faith and baptism and then teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. So we are always engaged in fulfilling the Great Commission when we are doing anything to help people obey everything Jesus said. And we will never be finished with the Great Commission until every one of us is doing everything Jesus said we should do. So that's where we are this morning, teaching what Jesus commanded. It's obvious to me that an agenda has been set here for every pastor, I think. Missions Week, with its emphasis of calling people to faith worldwide, leads with an inescapable biblical logic to teach them to observe everything whatsoever I have commanded you and we begin again to do that this morning. In two and a half weeks, most of us here will be celebrating a Thanksgiving feast. And rightly so. We have much to be thankful for. But in order to fulfill the Great Commission on Thanksgiving Day, we need to know who it is Jesus has commanded us to invite to Thanksgiving dinner don't we? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And the text is Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, if you would like to turn to that. But let's look at it in its wider context of the first 13 verses or the first 11 verses of this chapter. It's Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And Jesus has been invited to dinner by a Pharisee, that group of Jews who were the most rigorous of all law keepers, at least they thought they were. There is no evidence that I know of that Jesus was ever invited back a second time to a Pharisee's house, and it's not surprising to see why. It seems that every time he opens his mouth, he manages to undress somebody's hypocrisy. There never was a man, I don't think, whose mouth was more closely tied to the human heart than Jesus' mouth was. Was there ever a word that came out of Jesus' mouth that didn't have to do with the ultimate issues of the soul? No man ever spoke like this man. So the first thing he does on this Saturday afternoon at dinner is to heal a man of dropsy, probably the man lying outside the Pharisee's house like Lazarus lay outside the rich man's house. And Jesus heals him on his way in. And then Jesus looks at these law experts, these Pharisees, and he asks them if healing is lawful 
on the Sabbath day? And they don't answer. Well, he knows that their non-answer is an answer. He had already heard it in the previous chapter. In Luke 13, 16, the synagogue ruler had said very clearly, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. So Jesus says here at the dinner the same thing he said there at the synagogue. Which of you who's got a son or an ox that falls into a well will not immediately pull him out? On the Sabbath day, no answer. And then Jesus just goes on and leaves it for them and for us to draw the inference from that little interchange. Namely, you law experts, you Pharisees, you have a very, very keen interest in your own welfare. When the law seems to stand between you and the safety of your valuable ox, you have no difficulty whatever relativizing the law in order to protect your value. So it is clear, Pharisees, that the highest commitment you have is not rigorous commitment to the law, but rather rigorous commitment to the preservation of your comfort and your convenience, right? But when it comes to another person's illness, whose sickness is no skin off your nose, then the law is rigid because then it functions as a nice protection of your non-involvement in their trouble. Oh, the wickedness of religious people whose highest love is not God, but their own selfish convenience and for whom the holy law of God is either rigid or rubbery, depending on whether it protects or threatens our convenience and comfort. I talked to a woman this week, last week, who has made it a policy and is going on making it a policy, lying to an institution in this city in order to preserve a convenience that she gets from that institution. And I said to her, that's wrong. You cannot make that square with your claim to be a follower of Jesus. And she said to me, I think the Lord understands. In other words, the law of Christ is rubber when it threatens our convenience. But when I say to her, what do you expect from your husband in your marriage, which isn't going so well? It's not rubber anymore. She knows what the New Testament requires of this man, and she wants it. The law is rigid now for her convenience. Inconsistent? No, that's not inconsistent. That's very consistent. A consistent manipulation of the law in order to preserve one's own comfort and convenience. 
they don't come to this church. But I hope they do sooner or later. Healed. So it's clear, isn't it? Nobody will walk out of this service today not understanding this truth. Namely, you can be at your furthest ebb from God at the very heart of your religion in its exercise. Man at his worst is religious man using his religion to protect himself from inconvenience and disturbance. That's the first thing Jesus does on this Saturday afternoon. Not the most ingratiating thing to do at a dinner you've been invited to, but perhaps the most loving thing to do. The second thing Jesus does is to undress the pride of the dinner guests right there in front of everybody. He's been sitting there watching as these guests enter. Now, what does Jesus look for when he watches people? Does he look for how they're dressed? Where they're from? What are their jobs? No. He looks for what they love. Jesus always watches us until he knows what our treasure is. And he watches these people and he sees what their treasure is. They love the praise of men. They love the esteem that comes from sitting in the most honored seats. He watches them. You've seen it happen, haven't you? In and out of conversations. Gradually moving, manipulating, until when the invocation is given, they're right in the correct spot. What did Jesus think about people who love the praise of men? He thinks they will go to hell. That's what he says. Luke 11:43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and salutations in the marketplaces. Luke 20:46. Beware of the scribes who like to go about in long robes and love salutations in the marketplaces and love the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Two things go hand in hand with loving the praise of men. One, exploitation of weak people. They devour widows' houses. Two, condemnation. If your treasure is the praise of men and a widow's house is between you and that goal, you will destroy the house. But then in the flood of judgment, your house will be washed away. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, And as he says here in 1411, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you pursue the seats of honor in this world, you will have no seat at all in the world to come. Now, you would think he's ruffled enough feathers 
at this dinner by this time, exposing the legalist's ability to manipulate the law in order to protect himself from any threat to his comfort and convenience as he eats, and exposing the pride of the guests who crave the praise of man and the esteem for the honored seats. You'd think the party's over. It isn't. He's got more to come. He said, verse 12, to the man who had invited him. Now he shifts attention to the host. Whenever you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and it be repayment for you. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for it will be repaid to you in the resurrection of the just. Don't touch that snake lest it bite you and you die. Don't climb that rope lest it break and you fall. Don't invite your friends and your relatives and your rich neighbors to dinner lest they repay you. What an unearthly argument. Danger. Repayment ahead. Warning. This repayment may be dangerous to your health. Who on earth who on earth talks like that? Somebody who knows that a thousand years is but as yesterday when it's gone. Who knows that our life is like a vapor. It's here one moment and then it vanishes. Who knows that life, when you seek to save it now, will be lost in the age to come. But if you lose it now in love, you'll save it in the age to come. Somebody who knows that there will be a resurrection to eternal life, a resurrection of the just to spend a millennia of eons with God, if God has been our God. Jesus is the man. Nobody has ever spoken like this man. And the people who name Jesus as Lord ought not to be like any other people on Thanksgiving Day. Right? There are some people, and probably some here, whose first and only reaction to a text like this is to say, well, he can't mean that. Because if he meant that, that would mean an end to all church suppers and all Sunday school socials and all family reunions, and even the Lord's Supper would have been wrong because there were only his friends there. And so they move on to the next text. Having defused this text, bent the sword of the Spirit, on they go, manipulating, just like the Pharisees, the law of God in order to protect themselves and their tradition and their convenience unruffled. There is no better defense against the truth than a half-truth. The half-truth is, yes, Jesus is not intending to put an end to the gatherings of friends and to family meals. 
The truth is, there is in every human heart a terrible tendency and a powerful tendency to live by the law of earthly repayment, the law of reciprocity. There is a subtle and relentless inclination in our flesh, in this pastor's flesh, to do what will make life comfortable and will help us avoid inconvenience and keep us from agitating our placid routine and not want to add any degree of tension to our Thanksgiving dinner. The most sanctified people in this room must do battle every day against the universal tendency always to act for the greatest earthly payoff. The people who lightly dismiss this text as rhetorical overstatement are blind to the impossibility of overstating the depth of our sinful corruption and the deceptive power of our heart to make us think that everything is okay when in fact we all the while are enslaved to the law of reciprocity. The law which says always do what will pay off in convenience, undisturbed pleasures, domestic comfort, social tranquility. Jesus' words are radical because our sin is so radical. He waves a red flag that nobody can miss when they're reading this text because there is destruction ahead for people who are governed by the law of reciprocity. And I stress, I stress the danger of living for earthly repayment, for ease, convenience, comfort, Tranquility, because Jesus stressed it again and again in his teaching. Listen to these other sayings. Luke 6.24 Woe to you that are rich, because you have back your consolation. He pronounces a condemnation on the rich because they have used their wealth in such a way as to show where their heart is. And they have shown by the use of their wealth that their heart is in comfort and luxury and convenience, not in helping needy strangers. Jesus takes this saying from Luke 6.24 and he makes a parable out of it. And this is a powerful parable. It's the same point as Luke 6.24. It comes from Luke 16, 19, and you all know it. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate there lay a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores, who desired only to be fed by the crumbs from this rich man's table and the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died and he went to hell. And the rich man 
looked up to Abraham's bosom, far off, and he saw Lazarus, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus to dip just the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in anguish in this flame. Listen to this. Abraham said, Son, you remember in your lifetime you received back good things, but Lazarus, evil things. But now, He is comforted, and you are in anguish. Why didn't this rich man help Lazarus? Because Lazarus was in no position to pay him back any good thing. But his life was governed by the law of reciprocity. He will use his money what pays off in earthly terms. He was dressed in the finest of clothes. He feasted sumptuously every day. And he would not inconvenience himself to help this man at his doorstep. And so he went to hell, where everybody will go, who use their money to pad their lives with comfort and convenience and luxury instead of helping the needy strangers all around them. When you give a feast, invite the poor the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you or you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Blows my mind. Here I'm all set for a good solid piece of self-denial, right? Screwed up my courage. I've got to give some good disinterested benevolence, right? Jesus turns around and tells me, forget it. There is no disinterested benevolence in my kingdom. Your ultimate interest is at stake and you better start getting selfish and think about it. It is more blessed to give than to receive. You will be blessed if you help these people. If you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. You talk about investments. So the end for those who obey is no self-sacrifice. There's no self-sacrifice in the kingdom of God. Who wouldn't count everything as rubbish for gaining Christ? Why does it make such an eternal difference who you invite to Thanksgiving? Dinner. Not because everything hangs on one afternoon. The reason that it makes an eternal difference who you invite to Thanksgiving dinner is because that occasion, along with all the other occasions of your life, show where your treasure is. Thank you, choir, for that number. Is Jesus, with his commands and promises, more valuable to you than your tradition and convenience and earthly comfort? Is he our treasure 
or is the world? That question is not decided at an invitation in church. It is decided at Thanksgiving dinner and at all the other occasions where we can either use our time, our money, our wealth to meet the needs of others or use it to guard ourselves from inconveniences, discomforts, tensions, and the like. It matters whom you invite to Thanksgiving dinner because it matters where your treasure is. That's all.